0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Chan. Today's conversation is with a return guest, Wes Granberg-Michelson, Today we're going to talk about his recently published book, Without Oars: Casting Off into a Life of Pilgrimage. Wes has authored uh, quite a few different books, and he was, uh, from 1994 to 2011, the General Secretary of the Reformed Church in America, so for for 17 years, and a a prolific author, a frequent speaker, and uh, just somebody who's very insightful about uh, kind of all things related to, to mission and to church leadership and uh, you'll see here also uh, spirituality. This whole book, uh, Without Oars, is so interesting. It's kind of a a protracted... um parable slash reflection on the Christian practice of pilgrimage. And I should say it's really uh, it's really a religious practice that is known the world round. Um, but it, it has a special place uh, within the history and practice of Christianity. So I think you're going to enjoy this. Um, Wes is a very articulate person and uh, just has a really great way of communicating his ideas. So we're going to hear a couple words from our sponsors, and then we'll turn right to the conversation with Wes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Grace Allworth, co-owner of Studio Two Ceramics of Northeast Minneapolis. We make small batch pottery and teach low pressure, casual classes with the goal of sharing the love of fun and creativity with our community. At Studio Two Ceramics, we're committed to purchasing local supplies and using sustainable, earth gentle practices whenever possible. Whether you're looking for a thoughtful gift, custom churchware, or a new favorite mug, Studio Two Ceramics has something for you and something to share. Listeners of the Gospel Beautiful podcast receive 10% discount on all purchases. Visit our website studio2ceramics.com. That's the number 2 and use the coupon code GOSPEL Hey there, Gospel Beautiful Podcast listeners, this is Brian Schrader, creator of Worship Forward, a resource for progressive, innovative worship leaders. Here you'll find conversations about arranging hymns for your worship band, using song lyrics that promote justice, and how to choose great worship songs to use at your church. Check it out at worshipforward.blog. Wes Granberg-Michelson, welcome again to the show. (laughs) Great to be with you, Michael. It's always a blessing to have you on, Wes. And, uh... I, first off, let me start with congratulations on your new book, Without Oars, Casting Off Into a Life of Pilgrimage. Um, I really appreciated the chance to interact with this and always uh, just appreciate the kind of unique voice that you have within the life of the church. So glad you could be here with us.
1: Well, it, uh, it's a real privilege, and uh, um, I love the gospel beautiful and your work, and I, uh, I'm I- the invitation for me to talk about this with you is uh, is really generous, so so thank you.
0: Of course. So I have to say, West, that when I first saw the title of the book without wars, I I immediately went to my early Boy Scout days <laughs> and. <laughs> I was thinking about a time on the lake when they, they put you and two other boys out there without any oars um, as a way of showing you how to sort of navigate your way back. And so I wonder if we could just start with that image and talk a bit about the title and kind of how that, how that fits into the broader project.
1: Absolutely. Um, the title comes from a true story in the year 891, When three Irish pilgrims, uh, their names happen to be Dulls Lane, Macbeth, and Millennium, set off from Ireland in a small boat built out of hides without any oars, purposely. They wanted to wander for the love of God and let the currents of God's breath and wind and sea take them to where God intended. They had enough food for seven days, and on the seventh day, they arrived in what is today Cornwall, England. The story got recorded. It's an actual historical event, and uh, it became a metaphor for what it means uh, to try to live spiritually in a way that is without the normal sort of comforts and assists that we depend on, but which often can keep us limited from the destinations God really intends.
0: Yeah, that image of wandering really does play such an important role in this book. And I, I wonder, Wes, that I, I think you even say this in your book, that maybe the most famous pilgrimage book is probably Pilgrim's Progress, Yeah, um, which... I don't know if it's still one of the bestsellers, but it certainly has been throughout history, one of the um, best-selling kind of Christian books. And I just wonder for you, why is the pilgrimage such an important, I guess, metaphor or parable or or symbol of the Christian life?
1: Well, I tell you, Michael, for me, I've learned that pilgrimage is really uh, a metaphor for how you understand the Christian journey, uh, you write about John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. When it was published, it was uh, it sold it, it sold more copies than any book other than the Bible, <clears throat> and uh, it continues in you know Christian tradition today in various ways. Um, but it's completely allegorical. Um, it, it it conveys the power of the idea of pilgrimage, but I have also become interested in what in what the actual practice of pilgrimage has meant in the life of Christians throughout history and how that can really help us today the easiest way for me to try to summarize this is to say so many of us have been raised essentially to to believe that faith gets wrapped up in a series of rational propositions put into a, in our case, a confession, uh, a set of beliefs that become our point of security and our ticket. Um, and I think instead that faith needs to be seen as a set of embodied practices that really that really live out what we what we say we believe and and pilgrimage uh, has been a way in which that's been expressed Uh, it's it's not simply what we think but it's where we walk Um, and it's those ways of 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 following Jesus that focus far more on how we place our feet in that path rather than what specific ideas we get right or wrong and fight over so to me uh that's 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 what it means to cast off into a life of pilgrimage i don't know how how other we can really know god or follow jesus unless unless that takes root in how and where we walk how we live, how we practice. Now, you know, certain ideas and theological truths are important. Um, but uh, I, at, at this point in my life, Michael, uh, and, you know, being really raised in the Reformed tradition and mm-hmm. heading a, a Reformed denomination for 17 years, it's almost a confession when I say I think doctrine is a little bit overrated uh yeah there's
0: definitely that polemic there i can feel it in the book at least (laughs)
1: yeah yeah so so that's yeah that's that's what uh you know that's what pilgrimage has come to mean and i and i have felt that there are there are steps i kind of outline them 10 10 steps really ways in which we have to learn how to leave things behind in order to walk ahead in our faithful pilgrimage uh i found that true in my own life and uh That's what I've tried to share.
0: Well, and Wes, it feels as I work through this book that there are actually a couple layers of journey that are being talked about here. So on the one hand, I think this is, part of this book is grounded in a particular journey that you've, particular pilgrimage that you've taken um, uh, in in Spain, I think, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, And I can't remember the the term, I'm sure you'll give it to me in a second, but yeah. a particular pilgrimage you've taken but then there's also kind of the larger pilgrimage of your life and there's a way in which this book feels like a in the foreword somebody refers to it as a kind of a mature right way of, of 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 looking back on the life that you've lived and so can you just talk a little bit about the broader journey that you've been on yeah. and how it's kind of reflected in this recent pilgrimage that you've done
1: Yeah I'd love to and uh, and you're very perceptive uh that's that 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 is what I uh, that is what I tried to do in the book, Michael. Um, the I think the way I could best describe this goes back to a story in my early life in 1972. Um, I was raised in a very strong uh, white evangelical home and subculture. <clears throat> That's that was my world. Uh, my grandfather was a good friend of Billy Graham, um, Wheaton College. Uh, that 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 world is the one that nurtured my faith. Um, but as I uh, as I developed in my faith and found myself in Washington D.C., I was working for a U.S. senator. I was part of the Church of the Savior. Um, I was finding that the that that the forms of piety and spirituality and the easy answers I had grown up with were not working for me. When I was living in the midst of a, a controversy over the Vietnam War, I was working for a U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield, who was himself an evangelical, but one of the leading opponents of the war. And issues of um, justice and uh, peace uh, were, were so important in that period. And and, and my background wasn't giving me the right or sufficient answers. Um, I In 1972 in December, the election was over. Richard Nixon had been reelected. Uh, George McGovern had won one state. Nixon had won 49. And, um, and I was sitting at my desk, pretty depressed and depleted, uh, really exhausted from the whole period. This was a this was before Watergate had broken into the scene. And uh, and I wanted to get away. I wanted to take a break. I called my travel agent and was going to book a trip to the Virgin Islands. <clears throat> Someone in, a friend in Church of the Savior had given me a card, had written the phone number of Father Stephen, guest master at Holy Cross Monastery in Berryville, Virginia. and had said, Wes, your in your uh, journey you know of faith, your inward journey you should you should go to, you should take a retreat out there sometime. well, I remember this day sitting at my desk and looking at that card and for some reason, I picked up my phone and called the number. and Father Stephen answered and i said uh, um, uh, i want I wonder if I could come on retreat." And he said, come right away. The next day I got in my car and I drove to a Trappist monastery. I'd never been to a monastery in my life, much less a Trappist monastery. (laughs) And I I wasn't sure where I was going or why, but I knew I was being beckoned because something within was, was pulling me, compelling me, to to this other place. And as I look back on that, I view that as the first time I really stepped out in pilgrimage. Um, And I've come to see those movements, uh, that time at the the Holy Cross Monastery in Berryville, was absolutely transformative for my life. Uh, So many future decisions get rooted in in the deep spiritual experience I had at that time. And, and so I've come to see that where, you know, how we respond to those moments and decisions that all of us face at one point or another becomes so important to, to really living deeply into God's intended future for us. Um, it was uh, just two years ago when I was invited by a friend to go on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, and again, uh, I, my heart just responded in such a way that I knew I had to do this, and I wasn't even sure why. What I what I learned is that walking in the paths of those four. thousand years Christians who have made this journey hundreds of thousands reflecting a reflecting a tradition that was not part of you know of, of, of my own but was a way of teaching me so many important things about how we continually step forward in our journey with God um and, uh, and so, yeah, and without oars, I try to weave that together, both the experience I had there. And then I also felt, Michael, um, I had to go to Lourdes in France, which uh, is the most visited Christian pilgrimage site in the world, if you, if you don't count Rome. Uh, I, I, I went to a very moving experience in Nigeria um, with a hundred thousand Christians dancing and praying all through the night in a, in a unbelievable festival and other places as well. And, and, and those experiences simply taught me these deeper truths about what we need to leave behind, especially, especially as Christians in North America, in my case, especially as a white Christian in North America, uh, in in order to experience God's love and God's life more fully.
0: Yeah, thank you, Wes, and thank you for the reminder that you're referring to the community de Santiago, which I think is also uh, refers to uh, the Way of Saint James. Um, yes, it is in it English, is. I think. Really? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, the, the story. I mean, I, I could summarize the story. Yeah, in please two minutes. tell us. Um, it, you know, there there are these legends of what happened to each of the apostles. Um, and in the case of uh, James, the legend is that uh, after he was beheaded, that's recorded in Acts, uh, he had, well, excuse me, he previously had gone to Spain, had been an evangelist, spreading the gospel in Spain. He then came back to, uh, to Palestine, um, was beheaded. And then his body, his decapitated body got put in a boat and somehow without oars made its way to northern Spain where it was buried and in the year eighteen thirteen, his bones were discovered. Now, I'm not going to go into the historicity of this. I'm going to say that was that's that's the story. And from it became one of the most important Christian events uh, it, at that time in Europe because when that became known and believed, within the next hundred years or so, people started making pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela and they came from throughout europe by the between the 12th and the 16th century you had hundreds of thousands of people in now in europe at that time making dramatic breaks from their normal re- routine to go on this pilgrimage because they believed they wanted to be at a place of special spiritual significance where God, what we would call today a thin place, a place where God's spiritual presence and love was known in a vivid way. And they made enormous sacrifices in order, in order to do this. Um, that pilgrimage tradition continued. The Reformation, of course, both Lutheran and Reformed, they denounced all pilgrimages, said this was just part of the faith that they were rejecting, um but the practices continued and in modern times um, they, they were rev- it was this pilgrimage was revived in a remarkable way so that before covid there were about 270,000 people a year who were making this pilgrimage the day i arrived in santiago de, de compostela august 24th of 2018 there's an office where you go and you show uh, your credential that you've gotten stamped along the way that proves you've walked a sufficient portion to qualify as a pilgrim. And you stand in line in order to receive this certificate. 2,330 people did that on that one day. Most of the people whom I talked to, Michael, never darkened the door of the church. I'd hmm. say about ninety percent, nine out of ten, weren't particularly active in church, but they were spiritually hungry, and they were on this pilgrimage for personal and and spiritual reasons. And that and and that also just opens up so much to me about what is it that that uh, is drawing and appealing people in ways that particularly we don't find or they don't find in the life of the established church, but yet evidences a real spiritual hunger.
0: Yeah, Wes, let me interject something really here. You um, you brought up at one point kind of the, in church history, there's a time when these pilgrimages were discouraged, and I didn't quite catch the period, but you and I both come from uh, Protestant traditions, grounded in the Reformation. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that most Protestants in the North American context do not really use pilgrimage as a regular practice. And I wonder, what is it about our Protestant tradition, especially the North American version, that that doesn't prioritize this kind of practice of spirituality? Well,
1: I think it's a great question. uh, uh, uh... And I've got, I think I understand some things, uh, some things about that, at least from my view. Uh, I, I mean, Luther, your Luther seminary, Luther said all pilgrimages should be stopped. There is no good in them. And and Calvin was about the same way. Um, uh, and, and so like different parts of, of spirituality in the Catholic church, which were rejected by uh, the reformation Um, We in in some cases, I think the Reformation, you know, threw the baby out with the bathwater. I I think we 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 left certain things behind that that really that really did have potential spiritual power. I I think the reason why that until more recent times, pilgrimages have never been thought of much in our in our Protestant tradition um, is because we we seek security in. How we uh, capture faith in our minds and in thoughts and in the way, you know, we engage in right thinking about faith as our main entry point. And we're, and, and, and we're less prone um, to put emphasis on those spiritual practices that are ways in which we really come to embody faith. Um, we, we've been less trustful of those avenues. I think this is changing. Uh, it, it's changing because of the the way you see rising interest in both things like pilgrimage and retreat and uh, uh, contemplative prayer and forms of teze worship. I mean, you make a long list of how there's a yearning for a more embodied form of spirituality, which is entering into Protestantism today when I go on a retreat to a Catholic uh, monastery and talk to the guest pastor, he'll often tell me that they get as many Protestants on retreat now as to do Catholics. Um, so I, I, you know, I think there's a movement there, but I think we've rejected it, Michael, because, because we're, we're more comfortable keeping faith in our heads. And because we've, we've sort of inherited this uh, this belief that has been with us through the Enlightenment and modernity that there's really a special a separation between the material world and the spiritual world, and that things spiritual are kept in one realm, material is another, and uh, and 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 that's become a comfortable dichotomy, mm-hmm. which is destructive yeah. in so mm-hmm. many ways.
0: Yeah, I I fully agree with that, Wes, and and I also wonder. I, I think Protestants often struggle with kind of having theologies that are located in particular places, Mm -hmm. or like you referred earlier to thin spaces, right? Which is language that is is kind of broadly available within uh, outside of Christianity too. But so much of, you know, the Hebrew Bible uh, speaks about God's God's presence everywhere, but also kind of God's emphasized presence in particular places, you think of the temple yeah. and, and uh, you know, God journeying with Israel through the wilderness, the ark and, and whatnot. And I, I just think there's some level, there's some kind of allergy or at least a level of discomfort for Protestants around this kind of <laughs> theology of place that God could kind of be particularly manifested somewhere. Even though I would add, like as a Lutheran, at least, right, we have this robust a sacramental theology yep. where we say, hey, look, like Jesus is here in this particular bread and wine.
1: Uh, you're exactly right. And if you go, if you trace that through, you go to the uh, uh, Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and all that happened in Scotland from the Puritans in that time and their rebellion against the forms of spirituality of the church that they saw. And they have the, a, there's there's a, the Westminster Directory of Worship, How You Worship. And that uh, was passed by sp- Spanish parliament. It was distributed to all the congregations. And there's one phrase in that directive of worship that says, as no place is capable of holiness, as no mm. place is capable of holiness. It, it, it exactly is that reaction against feeling that um, some places have, c- could have more spiritual significance, whether it's a cathedral or a, or a, or a shrine, or a pilgrimage, or a, a whatever, and 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 I think it's a form of spirituality that does that, that does kind of keep it keeps God's life detached from the material world, and and that's and, and it's one of, it, it it's partly at the root of, of many of the problems that we face. Um, I agree that Lutheran theology has um has a has a much deeper sacramental base. But boy, um, you know, to get us to really live out that, that way of being within the culture in which we find ourselves, I think it's very difficult. One of the, When I talk about um, the 10 steps that, are, that I think are necessary in, uh, in a life of pilgrimage, one of them is learning to embrace a re-enchanted world, a re-enchanted world. Um, I was struck when I went to Lourdes, France. Um, this famous site or visited by hundreds of thousands each year um, the way in which water takes on spiritual significance uh, as a healing uh, as a healing power um, the way uh, here close to my home in New Mexico the Sanctuario de Chamayo um, uh, probably the most popular catholic pilgrimage site in north america um and there it's there it's this legend about discovering a buried cross um through illuminated light and building a chapel and taking the dirt where that cross was and um and and uh, uh regarding it as something holy so pilgrim come from all over and they go to this small chapel and then they go into a side room and they take little plastic bottles or Tupperware and put some of this dirt in it and they take it home with them. Um, uh, You could, you know, you could go on and there, there's one level at which, you know, a rational mind says, well, this is all nonsense. There's another level at which I look at the experience of pilgrimage and I say for, for hundreds of years, Christians have tried to reconnect God's imminent presence in material ways that have spiritual significance, and that's what sacramental theology is all about anyway.
0: Hmm. Well, Wes, since you mentioned the, uh, the, the kind of 10, um, I guess you could say practices or yeah. concepts um, that, uh, that kind of structure the book, I want to read those out loud right now, in part because I feel like each of these is just kind of exploding or overflowing with meaning, and I think they're really nicely put. And then after I read them, I want to see if you can tell us which of them you think is the most difficult. And maybe you can answer that for yourself or even more broadly that you found for others. But here, let me just read them. One is the restless soul. Two is real presence. Three, uh, quite a loaded term, right? Yeah, yep. <laughs> uh, intended so. <laughs> intended, I, I assumed as much. Three is persistent patience. Four is the strength to let go. Five, walking into faith. Six, reckless spirituality. Seven, unpredictable grace. Eight, a re-enchanted world, which you just mentioned. Nine, leaving the empire behind. And then 10 leaving life. So what do you think? What, what are the hardest, most difficult ones? You know, the uh, it's, it's great. I, I, I would go immediately to the strength
1: to let go. And, uh, what I mean by that, uh, is that we, you know, we, we grow up with, um, the need for, uh, us to develop, security and ego strength and identity um, around the things that we do and around our power and ability to to make things happen. And, and all of this is necessary. It's, it's, uh, it's part of our development. But there comes a point at which uh, especially in the in, in language and understanding of pilgrimage, both an actual pilgrimage and just understanding pilgrimage as a metaphor for our faith, um, where we have to let go of those ways in which our identity and our ego have found so much uh, security. Um, and, and we have to ask uh, this question, uh, a question that I love Whose life am I living? Am I living the life that's just been expected by others and that's been been uh, deepened within me because of my power and accomplishment? Or am I living the life that is more rooted in what God intends at my at at my deepest level? Is there a is, is there a deeper part of me that 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 hasn't found its expression into uh, into the way I live myself because I haven't I haven't rooted myself in that in in that most uh, important way in in the reality of God's love. Um it, it is you know people it, it, and you find you find this within uh union theology and uh, psychology people like Jung, they talk about you find this in a person like Richard Rohr his most Popular book was Falling Upward, which is really about the second half of life. You found it. You find it in an evangelical like Bob Buford. Uh, hmm. You know, Buford wrote this book called Halftime. It sold hundreds of thousands and largely evangelical audiences, and it was about okay. You get halfway through your life, and you need to take a halftime, like in a football game, and think about what are you going to do in your second half. You, you know, there may be a whole set of things that you've neglected that God's calling you to. It's. It's this strength to let go and to walk away from places where we have felt secure and safe as we ask the question, what is it that God may really be calling me to and and, and whose life have I actually been living? Have I been living the life intended (laughs) by God? So I I think, I mean, there's another one I want to talk about, but I I think Mm -hmm. for most of us, that's probably the most difficult.
0: Well, and, and before you talk about that next one, let me just interject one thing, Wes. It, it seems to me no accident that the last two chapters both have the word "leaving," <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? And, and and because of course a journey right involves leaving something behind yeah. and then moving yeah. towards something else. But there is also a sense of death in all of those too, mm-hmm. right? Like go is. is dying. There is a cross element. There to is, it.
1: there is, and and I think I. I, I you know, Michael. I mean, I think I think pilgrimage. I mean, it is cross and resurrection experience. Um, it's uh, one of the earlier things I uh, I, I talk about um, is, uh, is 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 detachment and learning uh, to live by unexpected grace. Uh, that's an, that's the seventh one that you named, and uh, there's there's a question. It actually came. I first heard it from a, uh, from from an English, uh, actually Irish poet, um, David White, who says, uh, "When has your life become more than you could plan for? When has your life become more than you could plan for?" I think there's, there's a way in which we, we are always brought to a point where we no longer are in control, where, where events in one way or another have overwhelmed us and we could never plan for it. And at that point, we, we have to ask more deeply than we ever have before, what does it mean to depend an unpredictable grace. I think in many ways, COVID has done this for us. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean COVID has introduced a life that we could never plan for and, and has interrupted us in, in ways that um, are, can both be deeply threatening, but they could also offer a great opportunity to, to take a break from our normal routine and to say, what what is it that God now might be calling me toward? Given this unplanned, uh, you know, this unplanned circumstance that now has overwhelmed my life.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder. Are there any other practices that uh, of, of these ten that you feel like are just exceptionally difficult for people? Well, or- I think
1: for for those of us in the Reformed tradition, uh, I think walking into faith is. Uh, is is maybe one of the most difficult uh, and i i sort of make my own confession in the book uh, around that you know we can we can talk about the the marvelous accomplishments the revolutionary accomplishments of the reformation and 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 all that that meant in that historical time and has meant for the history of the church but i think we also have to see how as reformers rebelled against what was their only experience of the church at that time, rejecting so much of its thinking, theology, and particular practices, they had to find, they had to answer the question, well, then what does give us security? We're, you know, what do we believe? And they had to find safe harbor within, within constructing rational confessions, Saying this is this now is how we define faith. Um, in my in my Reformed tradition, my own denomination, it was the Belgic, uh, the Belgian con- Confession and uh, Canons of Dort and the Heidelberg. and years, it's the Augsburg Presbyterian, it's Westminster. They go on and on. There were between forty mm-hmm. to fifty confessions which were meant to be definitive. You know, the one confession of faith that were written within about that hundred year period. And I think in retrospect, what they did is, is try, uh, try to say that uh, our faith is captured in these confessional boxes, in these, in these neat propositional systems, and we simply have to get it right. And, we have to, and by thinking it right and by understanding the right ways of thinking, that then becomes our, our entry point into even into heaven uh, and and the differences between them then becomes a matter of conflict and of course this was not only conflict between catholic and protestant but also conflict at times deadly be, be, between protestants um, learning what it means to walk our way into faith to to understand our entry into faith by by uh, by, by by what we do by our practices. Now, don't get me wrong, there are certain bedrock theological truths about Christianity that I think are are essential. Um, you know, in those respects, I'd be an Orthodox Christian. Uh, but I just think they're a lot less than we think. And uh, hmm. I've, I've lost, I like I say in the book, I've lost my belief in beliefs. Um, I'm, I'm far more, I'm far more interested in and saying, um, and wondering, how is it that our, our whole lives are, are set into the embodied experience of faith? Uh, I, 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 I tell one story of going to Nigeria at the invitation of an ecumenical friend from an African instituted church. These are churches that are founded in Africa by Africans for Africans, not founded by missionaries. And many of them are huge. One of them is the Church of the Lord of Alora, and its and its a primate, uh, Archbishop Rufus Olsatella, had invited me often to an annual festival they have at Mount Tabora. I finally was able to go, uh, and I arrived there. And from throughout the country, people had come to this holy place place where the founder of their church had had a vision that led to this, this uh, African Institute of Church that now actually is not only throughout Africa, but in other parts of the world through migration. Uh, those followers had arrived at this place and they all come wearing white robes and they all take off their shoes because this is holy ground. And Throughout the night they pray and they dance and they sing, they celebrate. There are a hundred thousand people. Uh, it's at two hundred thirty three AM that uh, Archbishop Osatella finally gets up to give his sermon, you know, his talk, um, and it and it and more continues after that until dawn. Now, uh, if 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 you you know if you gave these people in this church uh, a theological quiz on the essential doctrines of the incarnation, atonement, resurrection, I mean, they'd all give you know they'd all kind of know the answers, but their their embodiment of faith was so clear. What 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 faith meant to them uh, was lived out. The next morning, I went to see. Archbishop Ossetel and his uh, chief bishops at their headquarters. And I was sitting down with one of the bishops and I was reflecting on what happened the night before. And I said, well, you know, in the West, uh, uh, by tradition, a lot of us tend to keep faith kind of primarily captured in our minds. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, well, here we believe faith has to move through every pore in every part of our body. Now, I, I, I think that's, you know, that is so different than the tradition I've been comfortable with, but I think there's something so powerful in that and so so important in this time when, when, you know, how we practice and live out our Christian faith Uh, for for many, including those from outside of the church, is is really the primary test. Uh, So I think that's also one of the harder things to leave behind. Uh, You know, we don't leave behind careful theology. I like theology. It's important. But we leave behind our trust in rational, theological, propositional systems as the main way in which we define and live out uh, our particular expressions of faith.
0: Yeah, no, I think I see that distinction that you're making, Wes. I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, so when I looked at this list of 10 and I kind of asked myself the same question that I asked you about which of these 10 may be the most difficult, I was thinking about uh, number nine, or I'm sorry, number eight, a a re-enchanted world. And I was thinking about how for so many people in my generation, I'm sort of early millennial, and then for those who come after, I think this might be a particularly heavy lift. And so, talk about the reenchanted world, and and maybe some of that language around enchantment, and what you're inviting us to reconsider. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, and you know, it for for those who are interested in the in, in the theology behind this, I mean, a lot of it comes from what Charles Taylor uh, has written in the Secular Age, and is probably the most right. pervasive uh, statement about what the secularization of Western culture means. um, I I, I think that this inherited belief um, that places, that first of all places confidence in our rational systems of belief and that then lives out of a kind of spirituality that tends to separate spirit from matter. The spiritual world and the material world are kept separate, which was so reinforced by the Enlightenment and by the Industrial Revolution so that the world becomes a place to dominate. And then if you add into that the dimensions of race and culture, white men are dominating the world and they're dominating women and they're dominating people of color. Uh, uh, and, And the story of Western civilization goes on. Um, it's this—it's it, this separation of of God's presence from the material world that uh, I think becomes uh, so dangerous. I think you know, if you ask me what what's really behind climate change, I'd say, well, fundamentally, it's that it's it's how Western culture made this made this division. And I think what what many are looking for now are ways in which that that reconnection is made and a lot of it comes out in crazy ways. You know, I mean, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you got, you know, 29 cotton forms of spirituality around the corner here. But, Hmm. but, but the, but, but the fundamental impulse is, is how God's presence is seen um, in, in, in a way that intersects and is embedded in, in the, in the creation itself. Um, And, and I see pilgrimages, it's fascinating to me that pilgrimages are always rooted in these vivid forms of spirituality within the material world. You go to the Santiago de Compostela in the cathedral, and, and uh, uh, there is, there is uh, the sense that these bones of St. James are living. I mean, that you mean, you're being in their presence. I mean, that's, for hundreds of years that's what drove christians there you go to lords and and the water um, you know the the legend or the, in this case it's really let's just say the religious history is that a 14 year old peasant girl um uh, in, in the town of lords gathering firewood has a vision and then has 17 more that follow in a period of about 45 days that are that are believed to be in appearance of Mary the Virgin Mary and at one of those another woman comes from another village accompanies her and and has this sees this apparition this vision and then goes to wash her hand in water which suddenly flows forth in a spring and her hand which was paralyzed is healed uh water from that spring has flowed ever since and thousands go there and they have experiences of healing. Now, these these can be examined scientifically. The Catholic Church even does this and and says most of them, there's another explanation, but for some of them, they are regarded as miracles. Okay. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not as interested in the historicity of all this. I am interested in the actual experience of people being healed, finding spiritual presence, being, being like, uh, you know, the story of, of St. James's bones, finding their way to Spain is so crazy in a way. But then I'll say hundreds of thousands of people have made a pilgrimage to that place and had a profoundly deep transformative experience of God's presence. So I'll take that. And it's, uh, as I say in the book, I'm willing to wonder about all these stories about pilgrimage. It's the myths of modernity that I think need to be
0: destroyed. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for those reflections, Wes. Well, Wes, we're really coming up to the end of our time. And so I just want to invite you as a final word to uh, maybe lift up any themes questions topics that we haven't uh, touched on uh, before we conclude
1: well thanks Michael uh, this it's been a this this has been a great opportunity for me to be able to uh, reflect on this with you um, I, I think knowing you and uh, and probably imagining your audience um, i here, here's what I'd say. The day the, the, the publication of this book was actually on November 17th, and that evening, I gave an address about virtually, of course, at Seton Hall University, a Catholic university, and they were fascinated to hear from a person they describe as one of the church leaders from the Reformation tradition and um, Reflecting on practices that were rooted in Catholic tradition, um, I think that there, I think this exploration opens up many avenues for ecumenical understanding and connection. Um, I, I'm, I'm less inclined to put a lot. You know, I've done a lot of work ecumenically with the World Council of Churches and all the global Christian form. I'm, I'm a lot less. Willing to put a lot of energy into theological debate. I'm a lot more interested in looking at how different traditions of Christianity practice their faith and what we can learn and be enriched through the Spirit from one another in those practices. Um, uh, understanding faith as pilgrimage and, and a means of faith formation uh, is, is really countercultural. It, it it goes against a lot of what we kind of assume but i think that it's it it just for that reason it it offers great hope for how our faith can be can be deepened uh, and, and renewed i think the reformation uh we you know the the spectacular things it did in the history of the church and of and of Western culture are, uh, are they always amaze me, but I also think, as those from that re- tradition, we have to ask, what is it that we left behind, that maybe was a mistake, and that we and that we can now be enriched from. Uh, I believe that understanding our journey with Christ as a pilgrimage and then looking at even those practices of pilgrimage have a, have a tremendous ability to, to deepen our own, our own Christian discipleship today. Um, And I, I, I think all of us need to have, have the, have the courage, the spiritual courage to uh, take a risk, to step out from our normal routine, to step forward, to, deeper ways in which God is calling us uh, to step away from what has maybe kept us constricted in order to step more fully into all that God desires for each of our lives and, and, and for our witness in the church today. Um, it's, it's a, it's really a transformative spiritual power that uh, I think this points of points us toward, and that's what I've tried to at least hint at and try to capture in, in, in the book without ours
0: Wes Granberg-Michelson, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's a wonderful opportunity to be with you again.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I really hope that you benefited from the conversation. If you did, make sure to leave a five-star review. Also, make sure that you're subscribed so that you can receive updates whenever new episodes drop. Thank you very much.